That's improv, bitch. Improv, bitch. I mean, after all, you're nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. I'm Jimmy Corain, and this is a very special episode of Improv Nerd. You know Dave Koechner from Anchorman and The Office. He was also my roommate back in Chicago in the 90s. We sat down with him at the Laugh Factory in Chicago, and we talked about the early days, living in a dwarf's house, what the cast of Anchorman really thought while they were filming it, and why Dave thought he wasn't asked back to Saturday Night Live. We are uh, here at the Laugh Factory in Chicago. We have a very special guest, a very special improv nerd. You know him from Anchorman in the office, Dave Keckner. Hello, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. And just for full disclosure, we know each other for how long? Uh, since 87. When you first came to Chicago, right? I came in 86, but I didn't start taking classes till 87, and that's when we would have met. Right. And originally you were from Tipton, Missouri. Yeah. And small I, town. I grew up in a small town, Tipton, Missouri, uh, 2,000 people. And uh, then I went to the University of Missouri. No, I went to Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I was a poli-sci major. And then I went to the University of Missouri briefly. And then I quit doing that because I realized I didn't want to be a poli-sci major. And I came to Chicago to visit a friend and saw the second city. And it was the first time I realized, like, oh, they teach. That's what they, they teach there. And so that's when I moved to Chicago. And you came to study with Del Close? No, I came because I was going to start taking classes at Second City. I'd come the year before and took classes at the Players Workshop for two weeks. And so I was going to come back and, and take classes at the Second City. And when I moved to town, I read an article in the Sunday entertainment section about this cat named Del Close and Sharna Halpern and how they were going to do, start doing television. I thought, well, that's the place to go. And uh, as it turned out, I was so fortunate to study with Del for three years and do that first. And I think simultaneously or, or some, like at some point, I started taking classes at the I.O. first and then started taking classes at Second City. So I was in both at the same time. And then Sharna took us out to Los Angeles. Now, I never got to go because I didn't even make the cut, but tell us about how awful that was. It was um, awful. We didn't know what was going on. We thought it was going to be a big break, and Sharna was talking it up, and I'd been in Chicago for two years, and I thought, wow, I can't believe it's going to happen this fast. We flew out to Los Angeles, and it was an improv game show hosted... um, the, the It was like a gong show, which was a variety show in the 70s or 80s, where bad acts would come on and do something ridiculous, and they'd either get gonged or get through the next level. And it was somewhat like that, but it was going to be celebrity judges with people doing short-form improv. Now, the people have to know this is way before Whose Line Is It Anyway? Way before Whose Line, and they had an improv barrel, and they'd pull suggestions out. We're supposed to do a scene. And the celebrity judges were uh, Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito, and it may have been Rio Perlman. I'm not sure, but I think, didn't Michael Douglas' company be, produce it? Wasn't yes. that the, the tie-in? Yeah. And then they had some L.A. people out there improvising what, as well. And we were all out of our element because we were all doing long form. We didn't do games. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I guess Dell had said, here's what's going to happen when you guys go out there. First thing they're going to do is fire your best improvisers. And so myself, Noah Gregoropoulos, and Pete Gardner, I think, got fired or not. Let go. We're like, you're not going to be in the show. Went out there. Farley was out there, too. And there was like nine or ten of us. And then they did the show, and it didn't go. It was just a pilot. And then we came back home, and that was that. How was that the first time you being fired? Uh, well, not fired, but it was um, not included in what was going to be the final product for the pilot. That hurt. It was weird. But interestingly enough, I didn't adjust to the medium, which was... Looking back, it's kind of interesting that I wasn't aware enough to go, what was the target and what did you miss? I didn't even think about it. Came back and just... When you mean what is the target what did you miss, what are you talking about? Well, what was it that kept me, prevented me from uh, being on that show? Because what they wanted was short-form joke, 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 jokes. And in my stage of my development, I was more interested in doing relationships in the scenes, which was my pro, uh, proclivity to do, which was great here doing long-form. But it didn't work for what that was. But I remember I never even gave it a second thought of like, why didn't my strengths translate to television? I didn't, didn't analyze it at all. And looking back, you know, if you'd had someone side coaching you, it would have been, hey, so how was it? What worked? What didn't work? How can you improve it? I just came back to Chicago and played around some more. But people also have to understand, when we were doing it back then, that there was this artistic mentality. It was like yes. we were in an artistic colony. Because we'd studied with Dell, mm -hmm. it, it was more about, because Dell would say, treat your audience like poets and artists, and then you have a ch they have a chance to become them. So we thought we were poets and artists, and, you know... Damn the torpedoes, and who cares what the media wants? We're going to do what we want. There's also a great story about, uh, I don't know what, Dell didn't know people's names and stuff like that. Do you remember this? There was, Dell had signed something to say that he knew your name? Well, I had mentioned, Dell was not the best conversationalist. And what he, would you think, for people who don't know his personality, what would you say it was? Describe it. Uh, and I don't blame him looking back. He was disinterested uh, not interested. Disinterested means something else. He was not interested in having a relationship with the students. And I don't blame him. Uh, when students, you'd come up after class or you'd see him after a show and go up and try and spark a conversation. Dell was interested. If you had weed to get him high, and I don't blame the guy, of course, fuck yes. Uh, he'd say, oh, let's hang out. But if you were going to be some fucking student who wants to come up and talk, he was not interested. And now being nearly 50 myself, I wouldn't be interested. Yeah, I teach you. We're not going to be buddies. We're not going to hang out. Unless you got some fucking weed, then you can get me high. And then you probably have something we can talk about. I don't blame the guy. I remember once when we were at the tracks and I went out to try and talk to Which Del. Which this bar. This there. bar where we were performing. And it was just a, a conversation went nowhere. Because I had nothing to say and I was nervous and all that. And I don't blame the dude. Like I, you know, now you go, yeah, yeah, uh huh. Walk away from me, please. Walk away. And so I'd mentioned to, to Sharna, Sharna Halperin, who's the producer of the Improv Olympic, Dell's handler. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I'd said, uh, I don't think Dell knows who I am, and I, I was pretty good at what I do, and so I was. And you had been in classes for a while, yes. and I, I was on the house team, and I was a good improviser, you know. 
and uh, not to say I don't, I don't, I was one of the better ones. Dave, you were very good. Right. Okay. So I was always. I don't know why you're so modest about that. Well, yeah. So I was as good as anybody else, and I said to Sharna, I don't think Dell knows who I am. So Dell, she, it was very nice. Sharna did for me uh, one year for my birthday. She had uh, typed up something that said, my name is Dell Close, and I know who David Kechner is. And then Dell wrote on the bottom of that, uh, Merry Christmas to, to what's-his-name-o. Which, and I think he scratched it out and wrote Happy Birthday, but I think the mistake of Merry Christmas was honest. And this was in August. Also around that time, when we met each other at, uh, at the I.O. doing Tequila Mockingbird, it was kind of an exciting time because you had Chris Farley there, who was mm-hmm. like a rocket ship in terms mm-hmm. of, and, and Mike Myers would sit on our, on our would team. Would come and play with us. What was that like for you? You know, it was interesting in that we were so immersed in the thing that we were doing. They, at the time, there was not uh, a lot of, there, there were, I'm sorry, there were not a lot of schools. There was basically the I.O., or the Improv Olympic, there was Second City, and I think there was... Well, the Players' Workshop. Players' Workshop, but that's not something we do. There was another Improv Institute. Right. But the, the, it quickly became kind of understood that the place to really learn improvisation was the I.O. Then they're going to hire you one day at Second City and you'll make money. But if you really want to be good, you go to the I.O. And so my memory of it, looking back, was we're all, is more like a, this collective where we were, it's more like socialism meets improvisation. It was the most important thing to us. We talked about it all the time. We were very passionate about it, and we were doing it all the time. And the reason I mentioned there were fewer uh, places to study, uh, also because this was before the improv explosion, which I'm not sure what year it happened, but it there weren't multiple levels everywhere. There was only levels one through five at Second City, and there were only three levels at the Improv Olympic. And so after level one, you got put on a team and you were on stage. So we would be on stage. So after six weeks or eight weeks, whatever it was, we were put on a team, we were on stage, and we were still taking classes once or twice a week, and we were doing shows once or twice a week. And then you were doing classes somewhere else too. So you'd be a class, you would be in class three or four times a week, and you'd be on stage three or four times a week. So that was an amazing advantage that we had, which probably doesn't exist now. And that was a difference. And you look back at it, and you know we knew that uh, Myers was special. Mm-hmm. He'd been at Second City in Canada, and we could tell that Farley was different than everybody else. Because mm-hmm. what you know anyone would do is you compare yourself to your compatriots, and you go, "How am I in relation to the people I respect?" Well, we're all kind of moving together. And then Farley comes along, and he's so amazing because of his unique specialness. Let's just call it that. It wasn't about workmanship. When you think about talent, that's Chris Farley. It was just God-given ability to make everyone convulse in laughter. And he, he loved it. He relished it. It was beautiful. And his level of commitment is unparalleled. It's nothing. I've never seen anything like it since. He was just this genuine beautiful vessel of comedy 
So when Chris came along, and when I'm talking about comparativeness with ourselves, go, okay, we're all moving together, and Farley comes along, and he's just clearly outer space special. I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to put Chris Farley in my league because I'm not in his. Uh -huh. He's out of the mean. Mm -hmm. Okay, Chris doesn't exist, but I'm still in, in, in keeping up with my buddies, right? And so then we're all waiting around to get hired by Second City. And why doesn't it happen now? And what's going to be next? And because and that was all of our goal. And we, we just kept doing it, right? And some of us branched out. We were in groups together. But then there becomes a point where it's time to leave the Improv Olympic. And things were changing there. We went from venue to venue for, to venue. Right. And then sometimes you don't feel appreciated and you move on. And then we did do that. Mm -hmm. and, and you actually did... Uh, uh, a, a show called Jazz Freddy. We did that together. Well, the first thing we did when we broke off from the I.O. was we went and did a show called The Comedy Underground. Which had, like, Andy Richter in it, Jay Leggett. Uh, Brian McCann, Brian, Brian Sack, Sack Kevin Dork, Dork, you, me, Noah, Noah. Um, Madeline? No, no, we didn't have no, any. Not one we, we didn't have any women. There were there. ten really good improvisers, and Sharna had lost her place, and so we took one over, and it was a bit of a schism. And then that, you know, then we find out ourselves how club owners will fuck you over. Right. And you remember the night that uh, we didn't? We had took a vote. John Favreau wanted to play. I don't you, remember that. There was a night, yeah, that John Favreau wanted to play, and I think we uh, we had. It was a couple weeks into the run, and there was a casting agent, and we 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 did not uh, allow him to play. Is that right? Yeah, I do not remember yeah. that. Oh, so he wanted to come up with us because the casting agent yes. wanted to see him. Yes. Wow. Well, I understand it. Um, I would I would now being who I am, I would say, you know, that's going to be good for everybody. Mm -hmm. The casting agents there. Let's let John play. But I think that was back then. That was that art artist mentality that we had. Yeah, yeah. But that was part of that, and also there was some arrogance, which is never on your part. Well, all of ours. Yeah. If we didn't let him do it. Right. Well, that's what I it remember. Doesn't, it doesn't serve you. Remember when people would get in the second city, we'd say, "Oh, they don't deserve to get in the second city." Of course. Yeah. You know, uh, folks, the judgment. There's no place for judgment in your life. Or judging anyone else's, it just it doesn't serve you. That's ego. In the is ego, it, ego kills. Is judgment gone in your life? Because I got to tell you something. Some of the funniest things that I and, and seeing your show tonight at the Laugh Factory in Chicago. Some of the funniest things would you would when you would come home from a rehearsal and mm -hmm. you'd have a, a problem with either an actor or a director, and you channeled all your anger into an imitation about them. Oh, that's interesting. Well, if you if you used and again tonight, of course, you have those things, and you know as you get older, you try to become more zen-like and you meditate and you're trying to find your center. Um, so that's the goal. But yeah, I guess judgment can serve you. And uh, then there's that question of is it judgment or can you also have fun with the observation of it? I'd say the thing that would stymie me was wrapping all of the energy into that feeling I'd have about the person. That's one thing. So you can have an observation about a person and channel it into something funny and it didn't have to be so couched in uh, the bitterness. But I think, I think, and this is just, I guess this is my judgment of you early on, there was almost like a conspiracy, like people were out to get you. Is that a fair thing? Or people were in your way? Or 
Right, and no one's in your way. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course, and that's, you know, you're younger. I'm from a small town, so I think I probably felt inferior. I'm living in the big, big city. I knew I was not as sophisticated, you, as, uh, as, sophisticated as people around me. Because when you came to Chicago, you would say, you know, oh, I'm a hasty. Remember this? You would joke about this? Oh, well, and people let me know that, too. Uh, sometimes my choices of clothing were ridiculed, and I really honestly didn't know why. And I was the butt of jokes, and you feel terrible, and you're like, what? Am I really that rubbish? Am I that raw? So then, yeah, you own it. Now, you, you came from Tipton, mm -hmm. a very conservative Catholic family, mm -hmm. six kids. Yep. Uh, at 10 and 13, you realized that you want to get out of the small town. When I was 10, I still have this memory, very distinct, walking around the west side of my house, feeling a bit melancholy, but knowing I have to get out of the small town. I have to live in a city, and I knew that. And I have a distinct memory of being in eighth grade, which I'm 12 or 13, and standing by my treehouse and thinking, I want to go do something important. I want to go do something special. So, so that's why I thought I should get into politics. And do, what did you think you were going to be in terms of? I thought I was going to be a senator. Really? Yeah, or a president. And it's funny because when we first met, uh, certainly there was the insecurity that you were uh, a rube from, mm -hmm. from Tipton, Missouri. But there was also a worldly quality that you had that I didn't have, and I grew up in the... the Is that right? Yeah. What, what was the college experience like in terms of giving you... Because you weren't small-town mentality when you, when you came here. I, I didn't experience That's it. good. Well, I had the desire to know more. I, I, I had good... Um, I had a healthy intellectual curiosity. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn mm -hmm. wherever I was. And when we were taking classes, that was graduate school and doctoral thesis all wrapped into one every day, every night. And we challenged each other and we challenged ourselves. And it was always about get better, get better, get better. There was a real passion with everyone and mm -hmm. I don't know if it exists now because now in the media and everything else the thing that's been important is to be famous there was no one that spoke about being famous there was there was a passion about being better and better and be the best and be the best and be the best which I don't know if that attitude still exists you would know better because you're um, a teacher I, I can just say going back to those times if you had a commercial agent and you were going on commercials we thought you were selling out oh wow you know, yeah, and, and um, I don't know. It's, today, it's, it's more business, but I think back then it was a, it was we were so focused on the art. We were, yes, I agree. It was a bit myopic. We weren't thinking about the business at all, and I never did. I never did until I left town, and even then, I really didn't focus. You on mean it. when you got to Saturday Night right. Live? And my buddy Eric Zickman said, "Find the Who's target." A writer for yes, for many multiple things. Uh, Frazier is one of them. Yep. Uh, Darman, Greg, Frazier, now hot in Cleveland. Uh, he and I developed a sitcom at one point. Uh, Eric is a lovely, amazing man, one of the, my favorite people on the earth. Um, and I'd met him at New York, New York, in New York, a couple years before that. And so when I did the real life Brady Bunch, and he had said to me, gave me a piece of advice, which I didn't understand. He said, find the target. You have the opportunity to influence pop culture because he's a very bright guy he said find the target and I didn't know what that meant and I, did, I dismissed it but it was it was one of the best pieces of advice ever given to me how does it apply to your life now 
Um, well, there, it, my life now is um, is dual. My my real, honest passion and focus is my family. That's that's probably more important to me than my career, and I understand that I have probably compromised certain portions of my career to focus on the family, but that will serve me and it serves me every day. And I understand, I know that's what's important. Um, but I understand it because find the target means, you know, what works in show business right now, what works every day. And I still go back to what we started, what we came up with, like, you know what, what's important? If you are just an artist, that's enough. That will always serve you. You can do your art and people will come to it. So do your art. And then it'll be something that has value. So you leave Chicago. You yep. get Saturday Night Live in right. 1995. Yep. Jimmy and I, by the way, were roommates. We were roommates. And uh, which, which For that a was, couple years. A couple years, yeah. Uh, we lived in the Dwarfs apartment. Remember Jimmy that? And were, Jimmy and I were very close friends. Yeah. Did I say were? Yeah. Still are. And we lived in a, 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 this is true, we lived in an apartment that Jimmy we Corain, used to live there. Jimmy Corain was the best man at my wedding. Yes. Um, we lived in a house in Roscoe Village before it became what it is now. And apparently uh, it was a three flat and the top floor was occupied by the owner of the house who had built the bottom two floors out, remodeled them and the top floor he fashioned and Jimmy and I both noticed like there was something really weird about the apartment we were living on, the top floor apartment. The handles on the doors were low, the light switches were low, the sink was so, the cabinets were so low, we had to sit on a chair to do the dishes and we asked the landlord one day, well, what's the deal with this apartment we're living in? And she said, oh, that was a dwarf's house. Mm -hmm. A dwarf had owned the apartment down the street on Roscoe, where I Roscoe meets Ashland, where now sits a Jewel Osco, uh -huh. was a, an amusement I mean, park Riverview. called Riverview. Years before, after World War II, it was very popular. There was a musical in, that, was, that played at the Goodman at one point called uh -huh. Riverview. And all up and down uh, Roscoe Avenue, the, the denizens, the workers of Riverview, which was a year-round amusement park, lived. And this guy, this dwarf, was a, a guy that plied his trade, his dwarf talents, at Riverview. I know, we don't know what he did, but mm -hmm. he was smart because then he bought property, right. fashioned the top apartment for himself, and rented out the other two. Up and down Roscoe, there were all storefronts, and apparently, from what we were told, there mm -hmm. were all bars. Mm -hmm. It was a rough area. And we were just glad because we were another show people taking over that apartment. Show people living in show people's places. 1995, Saturday Night Live. What is the most surreal moment from that show? Well, I'll tell you the truth, Jimmy. I always knew I was going to get the show. How? Can you explain that? I can't. When I was a fan of the show from the very beginning. I was 13 when it debuted on NBC in 1976. And you're talking about the original cast. The original uh, cast. Chevy Chase and, mm -hmm. and Belushi, Aykroyd, Radner, Curtin. Um, um, Garrett Morris. Garrett Morris. Uh, uh, Lorraine Newman. Newman. And then later Bill Murray. Yep. Uh, 
after Chevy left after the first year. And so I was a fan of it, and I dreamed, like, I'm, I'm going to be on that show one day. I'm going to be on that show one day. So when I got to Chicago, I knew two things. I'm going to be on stage at Second City, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on Saturday Night Live. I knew that. I just made that decision, and then it came true. And, and, and I've, I've said, too, that when I was at Second City, or I'm sorry, when I was at Saturday Night Live, I, I had a feeling like, wow, uh, this show has kind of gotten off the rails. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I want to stay there very long. I thought, I'm going to be here three years, and I'm going to take off. That was my plan. And as they say, in the world of the secret or divination, Sometimes the universe will hear you early because I thought like I'm gonna be here a year and I take off because you had a great year. I had a great year, and then the powers that be decided, yeah, why don't you go ahead and go? Because I wouldn't. They asked me to do like a Gerald Tibbins talk show, and I would say that's what's wrong with this show. We have too many TV parodies and talk shows. We need to do more original material. And they go, okay. They weren't asking me. They were telling me. Do that character as a talk show, and it would have worked. And I'd also insulted the head writer at one point and didn't know it. And so the it was the first year that there was any late night competition. Uh, the the year I was on the show, and I, I did. I had a great year. Um, we had the first hit characters in the show with the Fops, and I was told that Dell really liked them, which meant a lot to me. And so. Uh, I had a great year, and I was surprised to hear that my contract was under consideration to not be renewed. And um, so I wasn't picked back up, and that hurt like a motherfucker. I couldn't believe it. But, you know, that's the way it could go. And I already decided I wasn't going to stay more than three years, but things when you decide things, they happen. And it happened faster. So it's the power of decision. You know, you, you talk about your, your personality and insulting people and stuff like that. Knowing you early in your career, it's, there was a sense of, I guess, a little superiority, uh-huh. would you say? Yeah. I remember doing that. Uh, we did a, it was a Seinfeld takeoff. Do you remember this? It yes. was a, a, a trade show. Yes, a trade show. And you, I mean, a trade show is like, whatever they give you, go and do it. And we had to stay up the night before to rewrite it because mm-hmm. you thought it was crap. Mm-hmm. Well, no, they, it didn't work. You remember? Right. Yeah. It, what was written at one point didn't work when it got to the trade show. Uh-huh. And this woman started yelling at me like it was my problem. And you were playing Brainer, which was the, the Kramer character, was, and I was playing yeah. George she, Costanza. Whoever this woman that was in charge of right. it had seen someone else do it a different way, and she thought, well, that should work. Mm-hmm. Do it the way that guy did it. And the, the real problem, the issue was... The script didn't work. It wasn't the performance, which really bothered me, that this woman that knew nothing about this kept blaming the performance. And it was like, the script doesn't work. It's not the actors. So getting back to Saturday Night Live, do you think that had you uh, not been as superior Mm -hmm. and judgmental Mm -hmm. at that time, Mm -hmm. that you would have still been on that show? Yeah, Uh, probably. And again, the, my failing was not having the correct focus. And my focus at that time was, this isn't... Oh, here's what... You know what Lauren Michaels said to me? Because what had happened was, like like I was saying earlier, uh, it was the first night that there was... Comp- first year there was competition late night. It was the first year of Mad TV, and then Howard Stern had a late night television show, so the ratings went down, so the people in 
NBC, the people in the industry that worked at NBC on the West Coast for the first time in the run of the show had power over Lorne Michaels. Before then, he had an autonomous situation out there. No one ever told him what to do. It was the first time they ever told him what to do. And there was one guy named Don Olmeyer who apparently didn't like the fops because he thought they were gay. And this guy was apparently a homophobe. They said, get rid of that guy. And Lorne couldn't protect his pawns. He couldn't tell him to fuck off. And he wanted to. Lorne wanted to keep me on the show. There's no question. But he couldn't. He had to yield. He had to bend. And my final meeting with Lorne, he said, David, you're an artist. Don't change that. Which I took as a great compliment. Because he understood it. Mm-hmm. That was very, very sweet and very caring. And so then you go to L.A. Go to L.A. I got a holding deal right away. Uh-huh. And then within six months, I met the woman that I married. So that's the way, here's the weird thing, that's the way it was supposed to go. But at the time, you don't see that. You don't know that. And the other thing that I know now is, whatever happens, every moment, embrace it. Don't fight it. 2004, you do this movie called Anchorman. Yeah. How do you get the part? Uh, Adam McKay had written, and Adam and Will had written another movie called... Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, who was... So what did I say? Did I say Will and Adam? Was you it? just said Will. Will and Adam had written uh, a movie called August Blowout, which was a hilarious, hilarious, hilarious comedy about car salesmen. And it was funny, and it didn't get made. And then, so they wrote another movie called Anchorman, and it was a hilarious movie about Anchorman. And Will had not become the big star that he is now, so he couldn't automatically green light this movie. They wouldn't just green light it on Will's thing. And so that laid around for a year or so, and then Will did... Oh, it was Old, old School. school. Thank you. Ben, our producer. Old School. He pushed through on Old School. It was like, boom, this is Will Ferrell's movie. So then he got some heat, so then it was like, what's the next Will Ferrell movie? And the, the people, the producers that read... Anchorman had no fire. They could not get their heads around it. Finally got it greenlit. I auditioned for the movie. Um, everyone in town auditioned for it. I, I think I had the advantage because I know Will and I know Adam and I understood the tone that they were trying to hit. Mm. And I think that helped me get the job. And they couldn't say, we want Keckner because they didn't have the power at the time. And they purposely didn't say Keckner should be the guy because they understood the game of if we say we want this guy they will say absolutely not that guy just it's like a power issue it's a weird thing so they just showed three guys for my part to the producer the head producer and the head producer said why not that guy which was me and they were secretly going fuck yes and so they called me once they knew which they even admitted was beyond protocol because it has to go through the right channels. But they were so excited. And they, I remember that night they called me and said, you got the part, blah, 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 blah. And so that was how that went down. And, you know, as watching your, your stand-up act here tonight, there's a part where you, you, you recite lines from the movie. Right. How, how much of those were improvised? Oh, on, in, from the movie? From the movie. Well, I, I can't really remember. I know that... Adam was is so magnanimous when it comes to doing the movie, uh, all of his movies. He w- w- what we do is the script was amazingly funny, 
gloriously funny. And I remember thinking, I don't think I can improvise anything better than what's already written. Because Adam and Will are brilliant. Really. Were you intimidated a little, I mean, with the cast and stuff? Not with the cast at the time, because uh, they weren't stars. Uh-huh. Uh, Steve Carell wasn't a star. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Rudd wasn't a star. Will was kind of a star, but I'd known Will for right. a long time. I was intimidated because the script was so good. It's like, I can't beat these lines. These are great. So what you see on film is either had it already been scripted or it there might be a few words that are changed or it might be a hybrid of a line of something that they came up with and then you came up with something else. All I know is that uh, Adam inviting us to improvise in the process before, in rehearsal, and in the process was so uh, welcoming to improvise uh, that it infected the way the movie was made and the chemistry and the tone and it, it, that's what made it great was because he was open to the process. Why do you think the movie is so iconic? Well, it's a very long answer. Okay. I think the movie is so iconic because in its heart and soul it is a satire of the United States, the white American male. And it hits it on the fucking mark. Uh, It is about a woman having power within a male-dominated society. And uh, if you look at America's evolution, when you think about the impossibility that there was a society that existed that didn't allow women to vote, it's so fucking ridiculous. So that it was a milestone achievement that a woman would dare be an anchor? I mean, that's a satire. We're making fun of white, dumbass white guys who are trying to cling to power and being, you know, exclusive. So that's what the real thing is. That's what it is, is satire. And it hits it on the money, and because it is so um, tender with its skewering of these guys because they're making them all out to be buffoons and they're lovable buffoons and uh, so any white guy can watch it and go oh that's okay they're, they're, it's kid gloves but everyone else goes oh Jesus yes remember that that's ridiculous that they didn't want to ever act that way but they really did and it's a heightened reality but at its core that's really what it is it's, it's a satire of the ignorance of the white American male. Now everyone else is going to watch and go, no, it's just a big, dumb, stupid comedy. It's not. It was a really smart, smart movie. And that's why it works. It hits people on an emotional level. It hits them on an intellectual level that they're not even know they're digesting, I think. Did you know they when, don't even when know you were digesting. filming it, did you know this is the thing that people are going to remember me for? We didn't, we didn't know that. We knew that when we were making it, all of us had, after one week, we had all gone home to our spouses and said, holy shit, I'm not keeping up. And that's interesting, because all of us felt the other guy was... When you say not keeping up, what do you mean? Well, we, all felt, we all felt that everyone else in the movie was better than us. So I thought that Paul and Steve and Will were better than me, and Steve thought that myself and Paul and Will were better than him, and Paul thought that Steve and myself and Will were better than him. And How did all, you find this we out? All, we, we, myself, Paul, and Steve were in our trailers. Uh, we were all 
gathered in one of them at once and we it slowly came up we're like oh god you guys are so good and like i was having a conversation with my wife and everyone is every one of us had had that conversation with our wife and then about halfway through the movie because we all shot every day we were all really feeling like this seems special this is uncommon what's happening because i had done a bunch of film mm-hmm. and so had uh, uh, will and so had steve and so had paul we'd all done a lot of productions but we were all feeling like this seems special this is uncommon and i say this a lot that we all i i say it's it's like watching a no hitter you almost don't want to jinx it you don't want to talk about it too much we all felt like this could be a real you know special comedy that people are going to go oh that's a real good comedy i had no idea it would become what it is and i really to be honest with you jimmy i don't know what it is because i'm in it i've seen the movie two or three times people have seen this movie 50 times this is an important movie to people this is a special movie to people they have ownership of this movie i had no idea and i still don't understand because i know you you probably say i could have done better um are you happy with your performance oh i'm very happy with my performance okay. there is a scene that i uh that kills that didn't make the movie okay that you can see online where champ professes his love to Ron Burgundy in a supremely uncomfortable way. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes think that had that scene been in the movie it may have changed the trajectory of my career. But so why? Who cares? Everything happens for a reason. I'm very happy. I've got a wife and five kids. I adore her and all of them. I have always worked. I always will. I have that and I, you know, and I'm going to do the next anchor man which is awesome. How do you feel about the next anchor man? I I I don't about in terms of the pressure that you know how are we going to rise the bar on this? Oh, I've I, to do I'll be completely honest with you Jimmy, I've never had one thought about pressure. Completely honest with you. Okay. My assumption is this thing is going to be fucking awesome. I don't I I've never had one instant of doubt Adam and Will are so good that I know it's going to be great and I know how talented everyone involved is that that doesn't even enter my mind that it could possibly falter okay but to be completely honest okay and you you there's no fear of like oh I I got it's going to be hard to get champ back or anything like that it's no okay okay no um Let's talk about Todd Packer on the office. All right. Okay. Uh guys loud, he's obnoxious, he's a homophobe, he's alcoholic. Uh you seem to get these kind of characters. They're in your wheelhouse. Right. What do you love about playing these characters? They are out of bounds. You can play them larger. I don't mind hitting the back rafters. You can splash around in the warm tub and spill the water over the top. and over the sides how much when i see your characters there there's a sense of uh, there's a conflict yeah. in your characters uh-huh. uh, certainly in anchor man i think certainly with Todd oh, an Taylor. internal conflict yes yes where does that come from i love that mm-hmm. um uh, champ kind is a latent homosexual mm-hmm. i 
find that to be hysterical. Was that your choice or was that No, on it's paper? in the script. Okay. It's in the script. And I built on that mm -hmm. as it went because I think that irony is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's so complex. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, same with Todd Packer. He's not a latent homosexual, but he's so uh, immature and he's so struggling with his own identity. He has no idea who he is, which I think is a touchstone for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We all at some point feel like, I don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think you do in your characters that are, besides this great pathos, is you also, there's this low status guy who thinks he's high status. Yeah, which is hilarious to me. Now does that come, where does that come from? Do you I think that, do you, do you think that comes from Tipton at all? Possibly. Because I mean, I, I mean that's I, I can't be too self-analytical. You might be a better uh -huh. judge of that kind of thing. I don't think I even do it. I, mm -hmm. It's probably something that comes very naturally to me. It might be people I know from my hometown who I knew. Like mm -hmm. Jesus, who, who do you think you are? You're the dumbest guy in town. You think you're smart? There's real irony there. You're doing stand-up now. Yeah, I watched it tonight. It was it, Dave. I'm going to say this. I'm sincere on this. It is the I mean, it is such a, tr it's you, pure you, uh, everything that you do so well. And, and the stand-up part, the stories are wonderful, and the characters and stuff like that. How does it compare to doing improv for you? Uh, it's, um, do, do you feel, how does, for me, how does it compare? Let me like, ask you this. Are you saying as a performance? In terms of expressing who Dave Keckner is, improv versus stand-up. Well, I don't think of it in terms of one versus the other. Mm -hmm. There are different animals. This is a solo performance. I can improvise in this solo atmosphere. I would say improvisation got me there because mm -hmm. I, I, because I can stand on stage without fear and know it's going to be okay. I don't even give it a second thought. Uh, a large part of what I do in my act has been improvised at one point or another. There's always some improvisation in my show. Uh, you might you might not even know it. I know what I do, so I'm always trying to build and get it better. Uh, uh, it because the nature of improvisation it always changes. It's allowed my act to evolve. I have no doubt or fear that I have. There's more. There's plenty more I can do. I, I don't ha I don't struggle to generate material. What stuff? What are the tools from improv that you brought into your stand-up? Just that thing. I don't have to struggle to generate material. My my um, uh, improv skills immediately inform and feed generation of material. What do you want to be doing in the next five years? I want to start making my here, here's my dream that I can make some small movies that have a healthy enough budget where I can work with all of my friends and get what I will call our voice imprinted on film and do that for the rest of my life I would much rather be part of a, a collective film group of a certain point of view that I share with my compatriot friends from this community. Chicago and Chicago now into LA. And some LA. And we can do our films and all make our money 
and just do what we do and find that audience that goes, I fucking love that. That's my favorite fucking thing. What they are doing is my favorite fucking thing. And I know once we do it, everyone will run to it and go, how can I be a part of it? And we'll go, uh, just shut your mouth and get in. Dave, we got to get going. Thank you so much Thank for you. your time. All right. We're shaking hands now. Yeah. I want to thank Dave Keckner. We taped this late on a Sunday night after his show at the Laugh Factory, and he was super generous with his time. Of course, I want to thank my producer, Ben Caprero, the Laugh Factory Chicago, and please, 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 please like us, Improv Nerd, on Facebook. It really helps with my self-esteem. For more information about me or the Artist Low Comedy classes and workshops, any nominated uh, improv classes and workshops, go to jimmycarane.com. Until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Not just Emmy nominated, you won the damn thing. Oh, I did? Yeah. Oh, any now? Okay, okay. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would, it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 